Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 131. Python 3.11 is here. Our regular guests, Garana Hiela and Christopher Trudeau, return to talk about the new version. Garana wrote a series of preview articles earlier this year, and his annual piece was published on October 24th, titled Python 3.11, Cool New Features for You to Try. Christopher's video course posted the next day, covering the topics from the article with visual examples of Python 3.11 in action. Garana and Christopher collaborated to create code examples of the new features. We discussed better error messages, faster code execution, task and exception groups, typing features, and native TOML support. We dive into the updates and offer advice about ways to incorporate them into your projects. We also consider when you should start running Python 3.11. This episode is sponsored by DeepGram. DeepGram is the preferred speech-to-text API of Python developers. Get accurate transcripts from any audio with features for understanding. Try it by transcribing 200 hours free at deepgram.com slash realpython. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. So joining me again, it seems like a, an annual event that we're having here with the, the newly annual release of Python is Gerarna Hiela. Hey. It's good to have you on the show again. And Christopher Trudeau, my common co-host here. It's been a long time. I think it's been three days. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We're excited to talk about all the things that are coming in Python 3.11. Gerarna has actually been documenting a lot of these changes throughout the year at RealPython, which has been kind of interesting change for sort of a our publication schedule and let you kind of get a lot of your thoughts in and with not only the betas, but also the, the pre-releases. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, Garana? Uh, right, yeah. So this has been like an experiment we did because the, the earlier years, we just kind of loaded everything into one article uh, for the release. And we're kind of doing that this year as well. So we have the big Python 3.11 article, but then I've also done yeah. three Python previews, essentially, where we just focused on, mainly focused on one topic and then kind of threw in a little bit here and there. So we first did one, so, so this will kind of be a small spoiler on what we'll talk about for the rest of the show, I guess. But first we talked a little bit about the improved error messages in the first preview. The second one, we focused more on the new async features, the task groups and uh, exception groups. And then the last one was about the TOML uh, support that's added. So all of those things we'll also cover now in the big article and and then other stuff. Yeah, and that should be up on the site. Everybody should be able to check it out. This is going to come out just a little bit after the release week. Some travel and other things involved in my life right now. <laughs> so sorry for the minor delay, but you know, keep the excitement going with the new release. Yes. So great. Do you want to start with the, some of the stuff that we're going to talk about? Have We have kind of like a little list that we were going to go back and forth with, but we were going to talk about initially... One of the biggest changes, and Christopher and I have been talking about it back and forth for the last several months about 
the faster C Python project and kind of what's going on to speed up Python, not only in previous releases, but, you know, especially here with 3.11. Yes, I think 3.11 is kind of going to gonna be a, a great release kind of for developer experience, essentially. So we'll have the improved error messages that we'll talk more about later, but it's also going to be the fastest Python yet. And this is part of a huge uh, effort by by what's called the Faster C Python project. And this kind of stems back to a post that I think is about two years old now uh, that Mark Shannon did, uh, the Python mailing lists, where he said that I have ideas for how we can improve the speed of Python five times over over several releases. It It's a really ambitious plan, kind of got tagged on the Shannon plan. And uh, he, he kind of laid out uh, lots of ideas for how to improve the language which uh, is really impressive for a 30-year-old language that you can kind of come along with these these (laughs) thoughts. Yeah. But also together with this was kind of, okay, this is really ambitious. And to be able to do this, we need a lot of funding. For for a while, it kind of was hanging out there and saying, yeah, are we able to do this? Should we uh, focus on this? But then Microsoft stepped up and they've been funding a team that then includes Mark Shannon. Uh, it got Guido out of retirement uh, yeah. to, to to work with him and and then se- several other people. And I'm slightly scared to to, to try to list the people on the team because I don't have a full <laughs> overview. Uh, but I know that Eric Snow has been on the team for more or less the whole time. And also a, a couple of other core developers like Brent Bucher and uh, Irit Catriel at least has been there. And there might be a few others as well that kind of been working on this project now for at least uh, last year or so. It's been really exciting to see all the things they've been able to do. And they've also been able to contribute to things that are not purely performance. And then a lot of the other core developers also rallied around the project and helped out with, with different things. So it's really fun to see all the excitement around this really. And, and for Python 3.11, there was, seeing quite impressive results uh, already if where the speed up i guess the the proper answer is that it depends how fast how much faster your code <laughs> will be yeah what you're doing right right but i think on average uh, on benchmarks it's about 25 percent. some certain codes type of code more like 60 percent speed up others less so it, it looks really exciting and and one of the cool things is that this will this will kind of happen without us as developers needing to do anything except upgrade to Python 3.11. It kind of doesn't rely on any code changes. It's just Python gets faster. Yeah, it's really it's really kind of cool. Like I've been paying attention to this for a while now, and I, I did talk about some of these interesting changes that are part of the faster C Python project. And one of them is this idea of sort of almost like JIT, like, you know, just-in-time compiling type of stuff Hmm. for code that seems like it sort of repeats. And we've talked about it a little bit on the show, but we also, I had a chance to talk to Pablo Galindo Salgado about it, and that ended up causing him a, a bit of stress in releasing it in lots of kind of interesting, if you will, code paths that things kind of traveled right. that they haven't before and having to set up a whole new sort of testing regimen to think about that, which has been very interesting. Mm. But do you want to talk a little bit about that uh, adaptive interpreter? 
Right. Uh, so, so this, I guess, is the only big spe- speed up feature that has its own pep uh, that kind of at least describes it. And, and I guess we should also just point out here that uh, all the things we're talking about in terms of performance happens on the C Python uh, interpreter. Yeah. And uh, kind of the whole Python 3.11, it is the C Python 3.11 uh, release, although other interpreters like PyPy do tend to keep up with, with things that are happening there. But I guess the speedups are kind of changing the architecture to some to some effect on, on C Python. Yeah, so the specialized adaptive interpreter, the idea here is that, and I guess we need to be a little bit technical and kind of say that Python, uh, to some extent, is compiled. Well, it, it kind of runs uh, in an interpreter, but uh, it's not the Python code that we write that runs. It's something called bytecode, which is a, a much more low, lower level language. So typically, if you have a, a statement in Python, it's maybe three, four, five instructions of bytecode that it's kind of split into. And one of these bytecode could be something like a binary operator, say, add, addition or multiplication or things like this. And what the specializing adaptive interpreter does is that it kind of just keeps monitoring these bytecodes so that they, they're kind of tagged with the counter. And then when a certain code has been, uh, or a certain instruction has been called several times, it's able to switch to a specialized instruction. So if it's kind of seen that, okay, this multiplication, this particular multiplication instruction has been called, I think the magic number is eight, uh, at least in this implementation. So eight times with floats, so float times float, then it will specialize the instruction so that it's instead of your general multiplication that you have in Python, it will try to uh, to do a fast multiplication of floats. And then it, it kind of has to fall back so that if you that ninth time happen to multiply an integer, it, everything will still work, but it will kind of then fall back to the slightly slower one. So for the happy path, essentially, where you keep doing using the same data types, then this will speed up things quite quite a lot, actually. So it is definitely no- noticeable if you kind of do some benchmarks on it. So, yeah, that, that's the main idea, essentially, just that it's able to detect at runtime that uh, this operation keeps happening with these particular things where we know that we can do stuff faster than the general operation. Yeah, I'm glad you, you brought out the idea that this is also just one of the things that's kind of under the hood that they're trying inside of the faster CPython project. And I also like that you mentioned the the fact that there's sort of funding behind it because that's one of the things that mm. has a little bit been missing in the development of it and the fact that Microsoft's, you know, setting it up. And again, I'm not even sure the the size of the team. I, I know that they were hiring somebody to kind of help manage the the people and some of the stuff going forward. I saw job postings from Guido earlier in the year mm. about that. So, um, but yeah, great great to yeah. see the fruits of it this year. Right. Yeah, I think the funding part has been really important to to just get started on such a big rewrite of the internals, right? That that they yeah. have changed a lot of how the bytecode works and things like this, which would be really hard to do just on a volunteer basis. Yeah, totally. So uh, speaking about other performance stuff, do you want to dive in here, Christopher? Well, sure. And just to add on to what was just sort of talked about there as well as the 312, which is coming, we spoke about in the last podcast. One of the things yeah. they're going to be doing is taking those bytecode pieces and shrinking them into little micro bytecodes. So this is the adaptive interpreter is the first step towards a bunch of things that they're going to be doing with that underlying bytecode to try and get a more performance boost out of it. So uh, it keeps going. 
Yeah, nice. This isn't the only speed stuff that they've touched uh, this time around. Uh, I'm going to talk about a few of them. Uh, the first one is what's called a zero-cost exception. In Python 3.10, there's a bit of overhead code for any function that has a try-accept block inside of it. And that overhead includes a chunk of memory allocated to the function, as well as some custom code for managing the exception. Uh, the idea behind zero-cost exceptions is one that they've been borrowed, stolen, whatever you want to call it, from <laughs> Java and uh, C++. Uh, so what's happening now instead is the compiler is going to generate a jump table for each try-accept block, which is just a list of all the places to go with the code that handles the exception. So if an exception happens, you just go and jump to that other handling area. And the f- impact of this is that there's almost no cost to the code if there's no exception. So obviously you have to do code when the exception triggers, but if there isn't one, then there's almost zero cost, hence the name zero cost exceptions. So if you're using your sort of try accept blocks with the try for your happy path and the exceptions for failures, the majority cases hopefully for you aren't failures. And so this should improve the speed of your code. And a side effect of this centralized jump table is that block of memory that I mentioned at the top that's normally associated with these function frames goes away. And that means your function header is a little smaller and a little smaller could mean a little faster or more likely to fit it into a cache. So there's also, in addition to the direct impact of the exception handling, there's also a side effect of possible speed up for smaller functions as well. That's great. And then the next one that they worked on is in the interpreter's startup process. So you may have noticed that after you've run your code for the first time, there's a directory called Dunder, Dunder PyCache, so double underscore PyCache. These directories store the compiled bytecode of your Python. So this means that if you run it a second time, it can skip the compilation step. It's essentially caching that compiled thing. And when you run your code, what Python's doing is it reads that cache It unmarshals the objects that are inside, so taking them from the disk format and putting them into memory format. Then it allocates the objects and the code onto the memory heap, and then it evaluates the code. So Python already had a feature inside of the import modules called freezing, which is where a bunch of stuff is grouped together and pre-allocated. And this essentially takes those first three steps that I was talking about and combines them into one thing on the disk. So the stuff that's on the disk more or less kind of gets directly loaded into memory, allowing you to skip those first three steps. The performance improvement here is they've decided to freeze more of the key core modules, and this is resulting in a 10 to 15% performance improvement on script loading times. And that can actually be pretty significant, especially for short scripts, because with short scripts, often a significant percentage of the runtime is actually that boot up part. Hmm. So if you can get 10 or 15% performance improvement on something that's 50 to 80% of your code, you're getting a 10 or 15% performance improvement on your code essentially for free. Nice. And then the last one is sort of a grab bag of a whole bunch of different things. Uh, (laughs) So the way function memory frames are created has been improved. They've made recursion more efficient. Code that converts ASCII into Unicode used to be a varying length uh, feature, and now it's dependent on the length of the thing that's being converted. So it's order n. Okay. Com and perm functions inside of the math module were rewritten to improve their performance. And somebody went and tweaked some of the regular expression stuff for speedups as well. So 
between some of the stuff Garan was talking about and all this stuff I was talking about, this is where you're getting the 1.22 times speed up on the standard benchmarks. That's great. Yeah, a whole bunch of stuff in there that you can tell already that it's going to depend on the type of code that you run. Um, but it sounds like everything from just running scripts to running larger applications are going to see that change there. So that's good. Python developers from companies like NASA, Volley, and Spotify chose DeepGram's speech-to-text API for accurate, usable transcripts to power their voice bots, podcast analytics, and video platforms. DeepGram automatically transcribes any audio with understanding features like summarization, topic detection, and language detection, so you can do more with your voice data. Get an API key and transcribe your first 200 hours for free at deepgram.com slash realpython. All right, so then one of the things that they've been doing a lot over the last couple revisions have been showing you better versions uh, or updated versions of when your code crashes, these messages, these tracebacks coming back to you. So do you want to talk a little bit more about these new improvements for tracebacks in 3.11, Garana? Yeah, so for, for Python 3.10, there was a lot of updates to the error messages themselves. This time they're updating instead the how, how the traceback is shown. So that's kind of the, the thing showing all the error messages. Uh, so, so this will kind of help with any kind of error that, that we're getting in Python 3.11. And this thing is probably something that it's better to see uh, on screen than to hear <laughs> on a podcast. Yeah. Uh, but essentially, the the whole traceback is annotated uh, with small squiggly lines here and there. And and these little symbols are just pointing out the, the, this is the important part of the traceback. So, so when you typically get a traceback, it's just a bunch of of text and, and things. And it kind of takes some time before you're comfortable figuring out which part should I really look at and which part is more if I need to dig in to things. But with these squiggly lines, it really pops out at you that, okay, this is the part of the line that where something happened. So for a concrete example, if you just do something like you have code that divides by some number, and if that number happened to be zero, then you get a zero division error. And in the squiggly line, it will then distinctly just underline the one or the something divided by numbers so that you can immediately see that, okay, this is what's happening. So I feel just by this, just looking at these messages, I can much quicker just see what, what is actually the problem. Yeah, definitely. And and then it becomes really useful if you have these complicated expressions where you may, maybe have several things connected. So if you kind of do a lookup, a nested lookup in a dictionary, for instance, you'll kind of have a dictionary, then you look up some key and then another key and then another key. And if you then get a key error, then in 3.10, you kind of don't, may not be completely sure what is the key that I'm actually messing, messing up here. But with these squiggly lines, they will actually point you to that exact correct key that, that is missing. So immediately see that, okay, it's the second nested key, that's the problem. So yeah, I think that this is just going to be a great uh, boost to especially the debugging, of course, is kind of when we see the error messages. Yeah. Uh, just looking at these things uh, recently with uh, get, getting my errors in Python 3.11 has kind of been a joy. I've been really enjoying them. So 
I think this has been a great effort. Let's make some more errors so we can see these cool. Uh, <laughs> exactly. ASCII. I feel like they hired somebody who does ASCII art, uh, you know, because it's <laughs> like they're they're doing a lot with the carrot symbol to kind of like point, like, right. hey, here, and then the the tilde or Enya or whatever that symbol is mm. called uh, officially, the squiggles. Right. And they're just kind of doing more and more with it. And it actually leads into what Christopher's going to talk about um, when I went through his video course, kind of going look, looking at it, the the way the exception groups are ha- handled are, are much prettier also. So, hmm. yeah, as you look at traceback, sometimes it's, it's like this big glob of text that you kind of read from the bottom up. But now it's going to be like you know, highlighted almost and pointing at stuff and giving you a much better clue, which I think is awesome. It's great that the peg parsers hmm. let us do that. Yeah, and I, yeah. I, the the example in your article that I really really liked was uh, when you've got multiple calls to the same function call in the same line. Right. So if you've got uh, you know two or three functions inside, say a comprehension, or you've got two or three functions in, nested in another function or something along those lines, historically when that goes pop, you just know oh there's a failure in that function, but not which call to it because it's all in the same place. Yeah. This one it gets underlined, so it's like oh it's my third one that's causing the problem, which makes it way easier <laughs> mm. to trace the uh, issue. So, uh, yeah, it can, uh, yeah. there are certain cases where this can make a big difference visually. Hmm. I guess just, just to kind of round this out, I should, should just mention, so, so the way this is handled is that, that they actually had to add some information to the code objects hmm. to, be, to be able to actually point out where, where in the line this is happening. So that means that the that there is some extra information kind of stored in in the bytecodes than before. So so it does take up a little bit more memory. It, it's fa- fairly small, but it, it is not noticeable. So if that there are somewhere where you really need, if you're in a setting where you really need to optimize these things, it is actually possible to turn off these, hmm. these nicer tracebacks. So you'd run your code with like a flag of sorts? Yes, I don't remember the flag off. That's okay, <laughs> top of my head. But yeah, that there's the setting essentially. But but it's a possibility. Interesting. Exactly. Okay. All right. Awesome. So uh, Christopher, you want to dive into how they've updated the exception groups? Yep. So there's uh, two new features connected to exceptions. One is notes, and the other is groups. I'll start with notes. Okay. It's it's a small thing, but it's kind of handy. Uh, and essentially what they've done is added an attribute to exception objects that stores a little message called a note. And the idea is if you catch an exception and you want to add some information before re-raising it, you can call add note on the exception as a method. And the exception will can hold more than one note, and you can see what notes there are inside of a Dunder notes attribute. So if the exception, if you're not catching it, if it still results in a stack trace, then the notes are printed out just after the main message that's associated with it. So this allows you to annotate more information, and I don't mean that in the type hinting way, annotate more information to the exception and give more information to your users when something goes wrong. So it's uh, it's a neat little thing. It's uh, not earth-shattering, but it's uh, anything where you can tell your users, give your users a little better hint, or, your, the, or yourself as a developer is always a good thing that's a hard one for you to like come up with like what should this say if you're just creating an example as like an article or a video creator yeah so i i would think like the typical use case is if you've got let's say you're catching um an exception from a library somewhere and you've got more information that you know so rather than you know, the generic i couldn't open this file maybe you, right. you you know something about why you couldn't open the file it isn't there or you gave me a directory instead or something along those lines you could 
add that to the note and that would automatically get spit out on the error. So yeah, nice. It needs the obviously it needs the programmer to have the context to give you that information, but it gives you the ability to do that. Uh, historically, you probably would have put like a log message or a print and then let re-raise the exception. This is kind of associating it with the exception, which tends to mean it'll automatically get caught in your loggers and whatever. So it's, it's it saves you a step for this kind of information that you might have been doing before. Cool. The bigger new feature is something called exception groups. Uh, so if you've ever had an exception generated during your exception handling, this feature might be for you. So there are a couple different situations where multiple exceptions can be generated or when an exception happens inside of an exception. And it could be clearer if this was handled as a single unit. And that's the idea behind exception groups is it allows you to group exceptions together. So you create an exception group object, you pass it in a name for the group and a list of the exceptions that are in the group. And then you can raise this group just like you would an exception. So for the most part, once you've got this object, it you can treat it kind of like an exception. It's not a big deal. And then the stack trace, that, and this is what you were hinting at earlier, when it gets spit out, there's these nice little ASCII art borders around it showing which the different exceptions are in the groups. And there's some information about, you know, this is group one and this is group two. And so it gives you, uh, it, it's, I find it personally way easier to read than the whole while processing your exception, another exception happened. This It, it cleans it up nicely. Yeah. And then in addition to the new class of objects, the language has a new piece of syntax, and that is accept star. Uh, this works just like the accept keyword in a try accept block, but you put a star after the word accept. And when you use this new syntax, you're able to catch an exception that's inside of an exception group. So say I had a try accept block with accept star value error as group is my uh, line. Uh, and that's my catch clause, right? So if an exception group is raised that has a value error inside of it, then the accept star value error would catch it. And then that block itself would get a exception group passed in. So you don't get the value error like you would normally do in a regular accept value error. You get a group containing the value error. And they did this on purpose so that if there's more than one value error, you will get all of them. So it allows you to catch multiples inside of the group. And you can do this same kind of operation by hand if you've got an instance of an exception group. So there's a method that they've added called split, and that returns a new group containing whatever you split on. So back to I've got an exception group, I've got, say, two value errors and a type error in it. I can call split value error and it will give me back two groups, one with the value errors in it and the other with whatever else that wasn't a value error. So it's this kind of filtering concept that's both in the block and on a method on the groups itself. And when the baton gets passed back to me, I'll tell you about a new feature in AsyncIO that uses this new syntax. So they're already taking advantage of it uh, later on. Spoiler alert. <laughs> it's it's neat. The, there's been a lot of work happening with exceptions generally. Just the you know you started off talking about the zero cost exceptions and, and working there, and, and I, I definitely can see some expertise of different individuals kind of being uh, used across the release. So that it's kind of neat to kind of watch. Yeah, and I, and, and I love the steal from other languages, right? Because uh, there, there's nothing like watching how somebody else does it and if it's working or not working. And then, oh, the steal the good ideas and don't steal yeah. the bad ideas. So uh, I'm all for watching what other languages are doing. Yeah. So every year we seem to talk a little bit more about um, type hints inside of Python. And Garana, you want to talk about some of the ones here for 3.11? 
Sure. Uh, yes, as you say, the, the story's kind of been... Uh, at every release, there's a couple of new typing things coming. And it seems like uh, every year I think that, okay, now they're, it's complete. We have covered everything. <laughs> and then yeah. there's even more things coming next year. So I think this year there's five typing-related peps that are kind of coming in Python 3.11, which I think is a record. I don't can't remember I've seen that many before. Yeah. Now, one interesting, to some extent, thing with type hints and, and, and the version. Uh, so these are type hints come, or type, yeah, hint uh, features coming in Python 3.11, is that a lot of them, they're able to kind of uh, backport to earlier versions. Okay. P- partly through the typing extensions uh, module. So, so a couple of these things we'll talk about will actually work in Python 3.10 and, and maybe even earlier. But then... At the same time, some of these things uh, won't won't work even if you're on Python 3.11 uh, because they're not implemented in the p- type checkers yet. Mm. So, so it kind of needs both the language support and it needs the type checker support. So, so actually, which things are working in which setups? Um, usually just a little bit of patience and things will start working, but it's not completely trivial to say when things are working. Yeah. That said, uh, so... so the big things, so the things that have their peps, I'll kind of quickly just rush through them. Okay. So, so and and then yeah, dive into a little bit more detail on a few of them. One of them is just called variadic generics. The idea here is that uh, a generic in terms of typing is that you have you have a type that's parameterized by another type. So, so a typical example would be that you have a list of strings or a list of integers. So both of them are lists, but they're parameterized by uh, by strings and integers. So as in this case, the list is kind of the generic. The variadic part that's kind of coming is that uh, you can have things that are parameterized by an, sort of like an unknown number or a variational number of, uh, of different types. So to have a concrete example here, uh, we may have a tuple. Uh, may, maybe we have a pair. So we have two things. So we have a tuple of, say, string and int. In that case, it's easy to to parameterize this as a generic. We need to use something called type variables, but essentially we just say that, okay, this the first thing has a type, the second thing has a type. But if we have a tuple and we don't know how many elements the tuple will have, then we can't really uh, type in that properly in as, as a generic. So if we don't really know the types, we just know it's a tuple of n things. So that's where kind of your variadic generics come in and, and they added something they call a type var tuple, which is then a type variable that can hold a var- variadic number of, of other types, essentially. So it's, it's again, something that's probably easier to see than, uh, than to hear. Yeah, your article covers it pretty well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, so we have a couple of articles for this. And uh, the, the main kind of motivational use case for this has been uh, to, to be able to to add type hints to arrays, typically NumPy arrays, of different shape. So you kind of want to say that, okay, I have uh, an n-dimensional array where this n may vary. So it could be a one-dimensional vector or two-dimensional matrix and and things like this. So that's where you kind of get the variadic thing and then be be able to then actually add annotations on those kind of arrays. So so that's probably one of the, the bigger things, but at the same time, it's also, I think at the moment, still not properly supported by at least not all type checkers. So it's one of the things we still need to wait a little bit on. 
then a, a related thing in in the sense that it's currently all that it's currently typically handled by these type variables is something they call the self type, and this is something that is sounds like more or less a, a trivial problem. So if if you're creating a class and you have a method which returns an instance of your class, mm-hmm. then you want to have the the return value should should then just be I return my, myself, and that's exactly what the self type will be able to do. But before we had self, we we could try to kind of say, okay, I have a point class, and this method returns point, but that wouldn't work because point isn't defined yet. So so then there were things like you could add quotes around point, and then the type checkers will be able to figure it out. But this wasn't quite enough either, because if you would then start to do uh, subclasses of your point, then the annotation that it returns a point is no longer true. It returns the subclass of point and so on. So there's a lot of kind of subtleties in how to actually uh, annotate the, these kind of return values. And that's now all kind of wrapped into this new self-type that just handles everything. So what's kind of been something you almost need to really understand the whole type system to be able to figure out how to annotate uh, you can now just do from typing import self and then annotate with this self thing a couple of the other uh, smaller features is one that's called uh, you can tag something as an arbitrary literal string type and the idea here is that you have you have a string that you really want to make sure is a literal string. So, so it's something that's kind of spelled out with, with quotes. Typically, this would be strings that you'll use in an unsafe place, like, for instance, in a database query or things like this. Okay. And you want to just make sure that it's not tampered with. So, so it doesn't contain information that comes from, say, a user, user entering a value or you're parsing from some unsafe source. So type checkers, the idea is that type checkers will be able to see, uh, to check that literal string types, that they are actual literal strings or at least put together by several literal, literal strings and, and so on. Mm. So, so it will kind of just help a little bit with security. And then two others. So one is uh, called, it has the descriptive name, marking individual type ticked items as required or potentially missing. And this uh, harkens back, I think it was in 3.8 that introduced the typed dict type, which is then a, a way to annotate dictionaries with kind of which fields should should be in a dictionary. Okay. And this new pep 655, it's called, is essentially just adding a little bit of features on top of this so that you can uh, more flexibly say that this particular field is required and and so on. And the final one is one called data class transforms. And this one is just some, something you can add to classes that look like data classes, essentially. So it's kind of, kind of just to help out maybe more, more edit, uh, help, help your IDEs and editors than actual do the typing checks uh, in that it, you're just marking this class behaves similar to how the data class behaves in terms of that it, it kind of lists fields and so on. Okay. Yeah, a, a lot of different small small little features that are kind of rounding out, I guess, that they're small, <laughs> mo- mostly small niche cases. Yeah, there's some like sharp edges that have been existing in the, you know, typing right. and trying to figure out kind of ways to deal with it. The self-type yeah. one is the one that I've heard the most about. Yeah. And I think the other ones are, again, just sort of helping kind of 
I don't know if it's mature the way to think of it, like it, the, the way that we're growing into using more of these kinds of situations and, hmm. you know, so, but I, you know, <laughs> I think there's always going to be growing pains of adding, you know, typing to a, a dynamic language. So right. these are definitely trying to cover much more of these things. Yeah, no, and I think the way they've done it, where they kind of started with a fairly solid system back in Python 3.5, I think, and then kind of just iterating on top of it, I think that's been working fairly okay, at least. So, yeah, yeah, gradual. Yeah, I guess that technically means the, the way you apply it to your code, but I guess also they've been gradually <laughs> introducing the time system. I'm expanding right, so. the definition. <laughs> yeah, right. I'll, I'll definitely buy into that. <laughs> For this week's video course spotlight, I want to remind you that Christopher Trudeau has created a video course all about this week's topic. In the video course, you learn about the new features and improvements in Python 3.11, like better error messages with more informative tracebacks, faster code execution due to many efforts in the faster CPython project, task groups that simplify working with asynchronous code, several new typing features, improving Python's static typing support, native TOML support, for working with configuration files, and dives into many of the additional features we cover in this week's show. This latest version of Python is faster and more user-friendly. After 17 months of development, it's now ready for you to use in your projects. Like all the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections. Plus, you get additional resources and code examples for the techniques shown. All of the course lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. All right, Christy, we're going to talk a little bit more about kind of the ways that these exception groups were being used in uh, async. Yeah, so uh, if you're familiar with async.io and the gather command, I can summarize the next feature in a single sentence. There is now a context manager-based mechanism that does the same thing as gather called a task group. If that sounded like gibberish, then <laughs> I'll give you a little more background. So the async.io library was added in Python 3.4. And it seems like that wasn't that long ago, but it's been around a while. And this is an alternate way of doing IO-bound parallelism, which means doing two things at once if your code is likely to be waiting on input for a while. Between Python 3.4 and 3.7, the library was solidified and it eventually resulted in two new keywords introduced, which were async and await. So the library is built around the idea of what's called a coroutine, and this is a coding pattern for creating multi-threaded applications. If you want to build some parallel code, you write some functions using the async keyword. You then build a series of tasks based on calling these functions and then fire them off together, and the system takes care of the fact that they're parallelized. And at some point, you need to say, okay, I'm done with this asynchronous stuff, and I need to get back to synchronous. And in before 3.11, you did that with a gather statement. As an example, in Python 3.10, uh, you would put the constructed coroutines typically into a list, and then you would pass that list as an argument into gather, and then that's where the code would wait until all the tasks were done. 
So Python 3.11 has simplified this a bit. And instead of using a list and calling gather, you create a task group as a context manager. So this is an actual object task group. And inside of that context manager block, you use the manager instance to create the tasks themselves. The gather step happens automatically, essentially by being part of that context manager. So the resulted code, for at least for me, I find is easier to read. Uh, it typically takes only one or two fewer lines. It's not like it's a huge savings. Yeah, it's a touch more succinct. Yeah, it's succinct and you don't need the list or the gather. So it, it, you essentially, you're looking at a block that says task group and these are my tasks. So it, it, it translates, at least for myself, I can't speak for the rest of you, but for my, it matches my mental model better than the, you know, the, the extra step you had to take with gather. So it, it just feels cleaner to me. And then, as I mentioned before, or hinted at before, the task group takes advantage of those new exception group ideas as well. So if something goes wrong in one of your coroutines, the exceptions can be grouped. And if you're running multiple things at a time and multiple things go wrong, then those exceptions might be grouped together. And this also provides a whole bunch of interesting stuff under the hood about how the tasks get shut down if one of them fails properly, uh, because there's more context information going on in the background here. Nice. There's a... A l- article in the October 11th issue of PyCoders from Guido actually talking about the trickiness of how semaphores had to work to get the task group to work properly. And uh, we'll link to that in case you want to dive deeper into this stuff. Yeah, sounds good. I guess we can also just note that s- some of these ideas have been around in other libraries for a long time, uh, like Trio and Curio. Okay. Uh, but uh, they- they've struggled with the implementation partly because uh, we didn't have the the exception group concept in the language. So, so in those libraries, they kind of created their own ways of handling the, the multiple error things. So task groups were actually, I think, planned for Python 3.8 or something, but they kind of stopped on, well, we don't know how to deal with the multiple error part. Mm. Uh, so, so it kind of had to wait for the exception groups to be implemented before they could finally add task groups properly to the language. That's good. It's nice to see you know the architecture mm. allowing that to happen. So the next one you're going to talk about, Garana, you wrote kind of a much longer piece already about <laughs> at RealPython, kind of diving into it, talking about the TOML. Right. Yeah. So, so TOML is a configuration uh, format, and um, it's uh, it, it's short for just Tom's obvious minimal language. So, so the creator kind of named it after himself. Yeah. So TOML is short for Tom's obvious minimal language, and um, it's been around now for about 10 years, and it's gotten more and more popular with different languages. So, so it's used in Rust, for instance, for the cargo files and things like this. In Python, it's what it was picked up, it's probably five years ago now, um, in a pep that was kind of talking about how can we specify packaging or package metadata. Um, and they decided that we want to use a file that we call pyproject.tuml. And as the name says, it, it used the tuml format. It's more that borrowing from other languages there, kind of looking right. at what Rust was doing in some ways, yeah. Exactly. So so since then, the, the TOML file format has kind of played a role in, within the Python community. And there's been several TOML parsers, but all of them has kind of been third-party parsers. So so nothing that's been within the Python standard library. So that that's meant that important tools like pip needed to kind of just uh, rely on these kind of third-party libraries so they would kind of vendor them into pip but still it was kind of an extra step and uh, and for some time you you didn't really know 
uh, how things were maintained and there were some parses that kind of came and went this had kind of been uh, been a situation where you need to kind of follow up with what uh, different volunteers in different communities have been doing so now that uh, both the say support uh, or, or the use of Tumble within the Python community, we kind of realized, okay, this is the way we're doing things. And the Tumble format itself is kind of settled on a version one now in tw early 2021, I think. That they felt that, okay, now is the time to actually bring Tumble into the standard library. Uh, so, so in Python 3.11, there is a module now called Tumble lib, which can then do Tumble parsing. And it, it's 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 kind of modeled similar to how you would uh, read things like uh, JSON, so that you just import the tumblelib and then there's a load and a load s function to mm. either load directly from a file object or you can load from a string that then contains a, a tumble document, and everything will then be loaded into memory and parsed into uh, a dictionary in Python. Uh, this dictionary will then be nested and potentially contain other dictionaries or uh, other other kind of values that kind of come from the Tumble format. Everything is built on top of a third-party li library called Tumbly, uh, which is also one of the newer parsers. But uh, one of its strengths is that uh, the, the whole code base is fairly simple, so it was kind of easy to maintain. And they were able to more or less bring it in as is, so that Tumbly now works as a backport. So if you need to kind of support Tumble, on, on Python 3.11, but also older, you can just fall back to use Tumbly on the older versions and then Tumblelib on on the on the newest version. So so they kind of play together really nicely. That's great. Yeah. So so it's it's fairly straightforward to kind of start using. And personally, I've been using Tumble files for other configuration as well. I, I tend to like it much more than uh, say YAML or JSON for configuration when it's things that I want to just spell out myself because I think I find it easier to 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 handwrite the Tumble stuff. It's easier for you to to write as well as to parse as you're looking at it? Yeah, I, I find it easier. It, it doesn't rely on the sometimes subtle uh, indentation that you have in YAML, especially if you get stuff very, very much nested. It can be hard to keep track. And these things I find are more explicitly spelled out in, in Tumble. Um, it kind of Instead of relying on on annotation, it, it actually uses yeah. It, it keeps repeating where you are in the in the tree, so to speak. So so it it's not dry in the sense that it it definitely does repeat itself, but it also means that it's okay. quite easy to kind of pick up the, the nesting part of it. Looks like it really ignores white space. Yeah. Okay. Which, as Python programmers, we should all be very very careful about clapping for because um, <laughs> yeah, that's different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it, it's good when we do it, and it's also good when others are not doing it for some reason. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yes. Interesting. All right. Uh, this one I was kind of excited about when I watched your video course, uh, Christopher, uh, with the date parsing. Um, definitely date parsing has uh, advanced a lot over a couple versions, and you talked about dates quite a bit. And time zones, I think, was... Is that two versions ago? <laughs> it's just been a while, version? yes. And and I promise not to judge you for being excited about date parsing, but... Uh, hey! <laughs> uh, anything to make it work properly. <laughs> there is that. There is that. So there's an ISO standard, which is 8601 for the date and time format, which is year, month, day, time. 
And if for our European listeners who are scratching their head going, but yes, of course, that's the way it's supposed to be. Well, unfortunately, (laughs) the rest of the world isn't as advanced as you are. And especially people like me. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We'll come back to my comment about the Americans at the end. The uh, So the date time module has always parsed these fine, but we've only ever, Python's only ever partially implemented the ISO standard. So it handled day, month, sorry, it handled year, month, day, and time, but couldn't handle week numbers or times with a colon, without a colon separator, or the trailing Zulu time zone indicator, which are all part of the spec. They essentially just ignored those parts of the spec. Uh, In the Python 3.11, the date time module is now much more compliant with the spec. So it's always been able to parse, say, 2022 10-03 for October 3rd, but now it can also parse 2022 W40-1, which although that sounds like a motor oil, is actually short for week 40 day one, which is also October 3rd. So I'm sure this is helpful to someone somewhere, and it's uh, great that the code now more closely follows the spec. I've never seen week format in practice, but I live in Canada and we're too big busy fighting whether the month or the day goes first because of our neighbors <laughs> to the south. So uh, so maybe this well, is I've more... seen Gerarda use it, actually. Okay, uh, there you go. So maybe, I was about to say, maybe it's more common in Europe. <laughs> and uh, yeah. uh, But it's always good to, uh, to, you know, partially implementing a spec is always problematic because it's the kind of thing that bites somebody because they think, oh, it, it says it does it. And then it turns out it doesn't do your case. Right. So it's uh, it's always good when new things like this are added. It's not quite Julian. Julian's when it's like the actual count of days. Is that right? Right, yeah. I don't know. I'm trying to remember. I had one of those situations where I had dates in a really wacky format, and I'm like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I think in astronomy, they use the Julian d- dates, yeah. which is, as you say, a count, count of days since, uh, some, I think it's 4,700-something <laughs> before Christ or something. Yeah. So it's it's a huge number. Um, yeah, in Norway, a lot of societal dates tend to uh, use weeks, especially okay. in school and places like this. So I'm kind of exposed to it here, at least. Oh. Yeah, I've been seeing you kind of add it to some <laughs> of our our uh, progression, and we are very mm. weekly based uh, as a, you know, me as a podcaster, but also um, right. as a, our, you know, a publisher. <laughs> we put mm. out stuff very much on on specific weeks, so it kind of makes sense. But it's weird to think of like week forty three and go, where is that? <laughs> right. So. For a little bit of entertainment, uh, Google the 13-month calendar. Uh, there's a proposal out there on the internet. Mm. Uh, it <laughs> solves so many problems. Every month has the same number of days, and there's like a carryover day, which adds an extra holiday to your year. I don't see the Earth ever getting around to <laughs> adapting it. Agree, uh, yeah. But uh, yeah. we, we'll, we'll, we'll start with trying to get the Americans to take on metric, and then we'll move to a more reasonable <laughs> calendar. One, one thing sure. at a time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, well... Next one up is a little bit about, I guess, displaying, is it integers and floats uh, as far as negative stuff? Uh, Right, yeah. So this is another, I guess, this is more of a weird technicality in how numbers are represented. Um, So so it's... um, there's a concept of a negative zero, uh, which uh, as a mathematician, I doesn't make any sense to me. Zero is neither positive or negative. This this only 
in, in Python, it only holds for floating point numbers. Okay. Because um, the, the way floating point numbers are represented in Python and most other programming languages is that, uh, that there is one bit that kind of holds the, the sign of the number, and then there's mm-hmm. some bits that kind of hold the, the magnitude and some that kind of holds more the precision part, the mantissa, I guess it's called. This means that you can have a number that's zero, and then you can kind of flip the bit on whether it's a plus or minus uh, for zero. So while Python knows that negative zero and positive zero are the same numbers, it, it kind of bleeds through a, a little bit mainly when you're displaying things uh, using f-strings, I guess is kind of what, what what we're at least dealing with in this this small little update. Yeah, And it, it's really a tiny thing, but it, it got its own pep, which was kind of interesting. So they did a full pep 682 to kind of talk about how we want to add a small extension to this format mini language that you can use for f-strings and also for string.format, where you kind of have your variable and then you do a colon. And for instance, for floating point numbers, you can then do a number that specifies how many characters you want to use for the full number, a dot, and then how many, an, another digit that kind of tells you how, how many uh, digits you want to display after uh, after the decimal point. And if you would do something like a small negative number, so say um, minus 0.00 something, and, and then show this as an f-string where you just show one or two uh, numbers after the decimal point, it will show up as negative 0.00. Which seems weird. <laughs> yeah, it, it will just look weird, right? Yeah. Uh, e- even though it originally was negative, so there might be some interesting information there. But typically when you're displaying this, you just want to show that this this is zero. So what they have added is that you can then add in a small uh, z uh, that will then uh, remove the, the sign for, for zeros. So it's extremely pointed at this uh, this one little thing that yeah. sometimes happens. But it's a fun little feature that now makes uh, zeros be just plain zeros and not negative zeros. So, Okay. Simple uh, display change there to kind of fix stuff up. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, the the negative zero part is actually part of the IEEE standard. So yeah. anybody who implements the floating port standard supports minus zero. So you can blame the engineers; they're Mister Mathematician. <laughs> so over engineered, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's a historical. It's a historical thing of we needed a bit for positive yeah. or negative, yeah. and and as a consequence of that, some moron can turn it on when it's zero. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I think we've discussed it on the show was some of the proposals for looking at, you know, how long, Garan mentioned it earlier, you know, Python's been around 30 years. And so lots of standards have kind of come and gone and there's lots of stuff sort of hiding inside the standard library. And uh, yep, there's this term that people have been throwing around this idea of dead batteries, that stuff that you know, how much is this being used? How much is it looked at? And uh, another stat I think that was run before was like, how often has anybody touched this code? So they're looking at some of the ways of removing some of the dead batteries, at least, you know, in upcoming versions. Are there ones that are being removed directly in this version? 
Uh, no, it's all deprecation here. Uh, oh, deprecation. It's, it's all, yeah, okay. it's all heading as part of the move forward. And, and you, like you're saying, right, code's painful. The more you have, the more you've got to maintain. Yeah. You know, my most productive coding days generally are when I'm deleting more code than when I'm writing. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, as you mentioned, so PEP 594 has been kicking around for a while. There's been a few effects on it in earlier versions, but most of it kicked in in 3.11. And essentially, uh, it's a couple, almost a couple dozen modules have been marked as deprecated and they'll be fully removed uh, two versions from now in 3.13 and uh, we'll link to the pap if you want to see the full list um, but honestly yeah. there's nothing here unless you're uh, maintaining really old code that you're ever going to miss most of it's outdated stuff like telnet or some old audio file formats that our younger listeners will have never even heard of and there's other things that although they're still used for them they've been replaced so the crypt module has been kicking around for a while you shouldn't be using it it's out of date and you should be using hashlib for most of it and the things that hashlib doesn't cover the third-party cryptography module should be used instead so essentially we're just trying to clean up the code stuff that the core people don't want to maintain because there's uh, effort in that and uh, this this is the way of what the way things should be make it easier on all those people who are volunteering their time to keep our code happy yeah and We'll include a link to PEP594, and then there's like a list of the actual deprecated modules that you should be looking at. Again, <laughs> most of them were a bit of head scratchers of like, oh, that's interesting that that even got added. <laughs> Seemed kind of very specific, especially some of those audio formats. So that leads us to the final question that we have every year. At this point in your life, should you think about upgrading to Python 3.11? And yeah, you know, I know the answer is always sort of it depends, but are there some specific determining factors this year that you feel pushes you one way or another? Garana, do you want to start? Sure. Yeah, I think that the biggest features this time are, are are things that just make your life better as a developer. Yeah. So I, I've already talked about the tracebacks, which I really enjoy. And then just to speed up, think, things running faster, which also is really nice. So I think uh, I would, I would kind of start using 3.11, at least just as my personal uh, interpreter, as soon as possible, really. Um, and I, I am already kind of just using the release candidates, and they've been working very well for me. So I think in, in that sense, if, if you're kind of just stuff that, that yeah, nothing will kind of... It, it won't have big consequences if stuff for some reason won't work. Definitely just jump over to 3.11 as fast as, as you can, I think. And one thing that um, has been nice this time around is that several of the, the bigger, at least data science libraries, have already produced wheels for Python 3.11. Oh, great. Now, way before uh, the actual release. So one thing that's been holding me back a little bit on earlier releases is that it's taken a while before libraries like NumPy, SciPy, and so on have yeah. gotten their wheels out. So so that means that it, it's just been hard to, to, to deploy my uh, data science stuff uh, on the new version. But this time around, they've been... Uh, they've been really early, so so even getting the third-party packages will mostly work. So so yeah, I'm feeling quite good about being able to upgrade early to three eleven. I'm wondering about that. Uh, Mark Shannon at PyCon, at, you know, had kind of a lightning talk. I think it was even that mm. he's like, please, please, please test three eleven. And you know, I know Pablo's been saying the same thing, and and a lot of people kind of pushing that. Yeah. So I wonder if that's some of the fire that's under people to to make the new versions, or 
if it's kind of a double-edged thing where they're excited about some of the changes in, in the new version. Right. Yeah, I guess it it might be an effect of both, and and I will. Yeah, I'll definitely also say that if you kind of have uh, the the stuff that's kind of running your business, yeah, be be careful before upgrading. Kind of <laughs> yeah, and and make sure you have proper tests and kind of all those things in place, and maybe more so than for for a long time that this that they they've done a lot of changes to the internals of Python. Big changes, yeah. So, so there might be some weird yeah. edge, edge cases that for some reason we haven't been able to find uh, during the testing periods. But uh, they, they've done a fantastic job on on routing out most of it, I think. So so I think it's still fairly safe, but don't kind of bet your business on just yeah. throwing 3.11 in there. Yeah, don't blindly step into it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, I mean that that's the truism for for any new version, right? It's nothing particular about this one. So yeah. So what do you think, Christopher? Yeah, you know, to echo a little bit of what he said, you know, my favorite thing out of three ten was the error messages, right? Like it's the thing that really impacted my day to day. Everything else, I don't know, I, I don't, I don't really see as I go along, and for and a lot of it always, I, you know, we've we, you know we talk about this every year. A lot of it depends on who and why you're writing your code. So if you're a library maintainer you are not going to take on exception groups anytime soon because as soon as you do, you have to put in code that says, and if they're not using 3.11, do this other thing instead. Yeah. So, you so you know, I still don't use the Walrus operator because I'm supporting things before those libraries, right? So I, it, it just hasn't become part of my code. Whereas something like the error messages, it, it only impacts me as the developer. It doesn't, it, you know, it's, it's the environment I'm uh, developing in. And so it, it makes a big difference for me and doesn't touch the libraries. If you're writing code that's more, you know, so a lot of my clients, I'm writing a website in Django, uh, then I don't have to worry about the library maintaining. I'm shipping to a version on their web server and then it doesn't matter. I can write and take advantage of whatever I want to take advantage of, right? So a lot of it is who's your target. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like he said, test, test, test. And, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and that's honestly, that goes not just for major point increases, but for minor point increases as well, right? You should never touch anything. Don't change anything without running tests. So, you know, if I were Google, would I put it on every one of my servers yet? No. For a lot of my clients, will it make any difference? Yeah. If it's faster, fantastic. Right. So uh, do a little bit of testing and uh, roll the dice. Cool. Well, Garana and Christopher, I really want to thank you for coming on the show again. It's been fun to do these every year <laughs> for the last uh, couple of years here at Real Python, and I'm excited to see. Well, I mean, we're already hinting at stuff and talking about uh, things for three point twelve and three point thirteen. Um, so it's <laughs> going to be exciting. So uh, talk to you again in another year. <laughs> yeah, I, I love this transition. Th- thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Great to talk about it. All right. Thanks again. And don't forget, DeepGram is the preferred speech-to-text API of Python developers. Get accurate transcripts from any audio with features for understanding. Try it by transcribing 200 hours free at deepgram.com slash realpython. I want to thank Garana Yella and Christopher Trudeau for coming on the show again. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. 
I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.